Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, please be seated. Thanks. Thanks for the gracious intro, Scott. Appreciate it. You know, it's true, for years, I've, I've been hailed as the world's foremost Messianic Jewish apologist, Messianic Jewish defender of the faith, and I'd say it's true. I'm number one among one. <laughs> I would explain it's like playing center on the pygmy basketball team. <laughs> you don't have to be that tall, but uh, thankfully there are many others being raised up and we trust they'll go beyond us. I just want to make one correction, Scott. We don't have product tables. Remember all the years working with our ministry? Resource tables. Our, our, in our organization, they're not allowed to use the word product. We only have resources. Life-changing <laughs> resources. <laughs> hey, look, my second book, but my first book just reaching out to the church at large uh, came out in 1989 and it's called The End of the American Gospel Enterprise. So we have resources, not products. Got it? Competitively priced resources. <laughs> that, we <sell. laughs> that we sell, but not for profit. <laughs> um, would, would you like to hear a joke? Jewish-related joke? Yeah, I've, I've done conferences speaking multiple times on Jewish themes and started each one with a Jewish-related joke. In fact, when I debated Shmuley Botech, Rabbi Shmuley at Oxford University on the Incarnation, I, I used a joke there. It was probably the best part of the debate. Okay. <coughs> so it was right after Christmas, and kids had come back to school, and the teacher wanted to know, what did you do for Christmas Eve, Christmas? And so she said, uh, Francis, what did, what did you do at Christmas Eve? He goes, oh, my family's Catholic, and we, we went to, to Midnight Mass. It was really special, and we, we came home, and then we, we all stood around the Christmas tree. We joined hands. We, we chanted Ave Maria, and then we, we opened, opened the presents. It was really nice. Oh, great. <coughs> Joseph, uh, what did you do? He said, oh, well, my family's Lutheran. So we, we went to Christmas Eve service at our church, and then we came home, and then we, we stood around the Christmas tree, and we held hands, and we sang Silent Night, and we opened the presents. It was, it was wonderful. She said, oh, very, very nice. She said, Irving, what did you do? And he goes, well, my family's Jewish. We don't celebrate Christmas. He said, but my parents own a big department store, and we stayed open until midnight, and, and then at midnight we closed the doors, and we stood around the cash registers, and we joined hands, and we sang that wonderful song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. <laughs> yep. Now, it's, it's better to be Jewish and to tell that as opposed to not being Jewish and telling that. <coughs> okay, uh, let me just mention to you uh, two books that we brought on our resource table. <laughs> um, <coughs> one of them just came out. And it's uh, written with my friend Craig Keener. Craig is, is one of the world's foremost New Testament scholars. He's, he's just a humble guy, loves the Lord, full of the Spirit, but an absolute genius. His, um, his commentary on the book of Acts is 6,000 pages long. I mean, he's, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. The miracle of this book is that we, we wrote the book together, and it's under 250 pages. That was the miracle. Um, but it's called Not Afraid of the Antichrist, 
why we don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, now, I always have to, the book just came out. I've only been at two conferences since, but I, uh, I know it's right with Jeremiah. I announced it the last church, but I didn't know what the pastor believed about it, so I wanted to clear that first. But any, anyway, um, he suddenly disappeared. So, no, just kidding. Uh, <coughs> that's, so, so listen, um, this book, where whatever you believe about the end times, you'll find it's written with grace, it's not combative. It goes through lots of scripture. Whatever you believe, it's going to give you a tremendous vision for what happens at the second coming and how we should live. But it's also filled with encouragement and hope. Uh, I, I, because I only wrote half the book, I got the audio book to listen to the whole just to kind of get the feel for it in, in one shot and was so thrilled with material Craig has there in there and I do that, that really gives you a vision for what it means to be an overcomer. So this book will edify you, and, and the book that's, if I could press a button and download this into every believer on the planet, uh, it's this book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, The Tragic Story of the Church and the Jewish People. And I'll, I'll be sharing some things out of this book as I, as I speak this morning. Um, I, I wrote this under tremendous burden from the Lord. It came out in 1992 and has stayed in print ever since, never gone out of print. Uh, it's been translated into more languages than anything I've written. It's, it's had perhaps the most profound effect on the, the, the lives of the believers that have read it. So you, you'll want to get this after I speak. Our hands are stained with blood. All right, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we love you. We honor you. We thank you. We ask you, Father, to give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. We ask you to sensitize our hearts we ask you to break our hearts with the things that break your heart. We ask for a spirit of faith to rise and compassion in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just want to point something out in case you haven't noticed this. Jeremiah, just come over here for a second. No, no, no. I, I just want you to notice that I'm a little taller than Jeremiah. That's all. That's it. That was it. There. And I wanted to point out that this pulpit is more appropriate for someone Jeremiah's height. <laughs> Just trying to look down to the notes there. There we go. Okay. Good, good. That's, it was amazing how strong Scott got doing that for me as we traveled. I remember being in the Orient sometimes, you know, in, in you know, Japan or something, and the translators are real little. They, they actually would have a little thing he would stand on to give him a little more height. Yeah. Okay, that's just love. That was love. <laughs> New York, New York love. <laughs> New York love. All right. <clears throat> what I'm going to speak to you about this morning is very serious. We're laughing and joking now, but what I'm going to speak to you about this morning is very serious and painful. Tonight is going to be a real faith-building night, uh, a, a night of encouragement and hope. You know, it says in Scripture, and we talked to the students in the school about this yesterday, those who sow with tears will reap with joy. That, that we always, in America, just want to snap our fingers and have a nice service and a happy service and, and smile and laugh, and everybody goes home smiling and laughing, but there's very little depth to that. There's very little root in that. And all the moms here who delivered babies know that there's travail, but after that travail, you have new life. So... 
In Romans, the 11th chapter, Paul gives a warning. And one of the most tragic things is when someone we love, someone close to us, someone who has impact in our lives, gives us a really strong warning, and we don't hear it. And years later, we realize, I destroyed my life. I destroyed my family. I destroyed my health because I didn't listen to the warning. Church history has been affected. The Jewish people have been affected because Paul's warning was not heeded. When I was in Israel last year, I was sharing the gospel with a small team from Jews for Jesus in Jerusalem. I teamed up with them part of my trip there. And we were interacting with some very religious Jews, some ultra-Orthodox Jews, so men with the beards and the black coats and very, very devoted to their tradition. And when they heard what I believed, they were outraged, one man spitting on the ground and saying, we don't believe this. And you say, why are they so vehemently opposed to, to Jesus? Why do they seem to hate him? And in their mind, there's a straight line from the New Testament to the Holocaust. That's what they understand. I was speaking to a rabbi friend who lives in New Jersey. We've been interacting for many, many years, since 2001. And he said to me, if my father said the word Christianity, he would vomit. And I asked him, in your community, do they believe that Christianity and the Holocaust are directly connected? He said, yeah, of course. How in the world could something like this happen? How could a faith that's based on the sacrifice of the Son of God for sinners, a faith that's based on God repaying our evil with his good and his love, a faith that, that proclaims God is love, how could that be perverted into something that in the eyes of Jews is a murderous, ugly faith and cannot be the true faith because of what it's done to the Jewish people? So Paul is dealing in Romans 9, 10, and 11 with the question of Israel. And, and remember, there are all kinds of dynamics going on that you have a situation in which Roman believers first come into faith, Jews at the foundation of this, and then the Roman emperor expels Jews from Rome. So now you have a congregation that's basically entirely Gentile. Now Jews have come back to Rome and are part of this congregation. So you have the dynamic, at least that's the way many scholars would see it, you have the dynamic of Jew and Gentile in the same congregation, and how does that work? because the Jews are living as Jews and the Gentiles as Gentiles, how does that work? But then the other question is, I, I thought that God keeps his promises. I thought, Paul, you're telling us that nothing can separate us from God's love. I thought you're, you're, you're explaining God's faithfulness. What about Israel? What happened to Israel? I, I mean, the, the Messiah of Israel came to the people of Israel, and they're supposed to be the ones that get redeemed, yet they're the ones as a nation that rejected him. And, and now it's mainly Gentiles, so did the word of God fail? Did something go wrong? Or, or maybe God's finished with Israel? They had their chance, they blew it. 
So he's addressing this issue, this question. And he says in Romans 11, 11, again, I asked, did they stumble so as to fall? Older translation, older NIV says to fall beyond recovery, but that's, that's what he's talking about. Did they stumble so as to fall? And they're, they're not going to get back up. Is God finished with them? And, and Paul emphatically says no. And I'm going to open some of that up later tonight. But he, but he says this in verse 17. He, he likens the people to an olive tree. Bob spoke some on this last night. And, and the root is, is what the, the heritage that God had given to the people of Israel, the revelation of God, the revelation of his word. And, and the, the Jewish believers, they were like branches, natural branches on this olive tree. But now because of unbelief, they've been snapped off, they've been broken off. And these branches from a, from a wild olive tree, the Gentiles, they've been grafted in. So it's not the original tree, but they've been grafted in, right? And Paul says this, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. Now, why, why, why would they boast over the branches? Well, obviously, there was something wrong with those other ones. God got rid of those branches and put us on the, we're the ones that live here now. It would be as if I had a, a big, big, big home with a big family, and some of my kids broke the, the house rules over and over and over, so I finally kicked them out of the house, and you were homeless on the street, and I said, hey, you can come in and use these rooms, and you began to think, oh, we're better than them. Obviously, something wrong with them, something good with us, and you become arrogant. And, and, and Paul is giving a warning here and says this, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. In other words, to the Gentile believers, you are guests in Israel's house. You are enjoying the blessing that God promised to the patriarchs that came to the Messiah. But it's not your heritage. It's, it's, it's as if I inherited a lot of money and a will and shared some of it with you, and now you begin to think of yourself in a haughty way. No, you're benefiting through God's generosity, and you're receiving the blessings that are Israel's blessings. Then he says this, you will say branches were broken off so I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. There's a warning against arrogance. Spiritual pride is always a problem. Remember John the Immerser, John the Baptist, as he's preaching and religious leaders are coming. Right, Jewish religious leaders. He said, don't, don't say, we have Abraham as our father. He said, God could make out of these stones children of Abraham. Spiritual pride. It can happen in Jewish circles, Gentile circles. It can happen to any of us. Branches were broken off so I could be granted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant but afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So he's saying, hey. Those Jewish branches, because of unbelief, were broken off. If you fall into unbelief, you'll be broken off. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. And that's just a good word for the church always. Not just the kindness, not just the sternness. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. 
Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Let me just stop here and make a general statement. A lot of Christians don't like that statement. And a lot of people who love the, the overemphasis on grace don't like that. You're saying God will be kind to me with conditions. Yes, correct. That's correct. God is kind towards us, and there are conditions on his kindness. Correct. That's what Scripture says. Deal with it. That's my compassionate side. <laughs> now notice this. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they'll be grafted in, for God's able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut off of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were granted into a culti- grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily would these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So absolutely, a Jewish person coming back to faith, perfect. You go back into your own tree. Now, second warning here. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited or arrogant. Ignorance leads to arrogance. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. We'll come back to the positive, all Israel will be saved tonight. But notice this. What's the mystery here? What's, what's the thing that he's unfolding, something that would be hidden in Scripture that it's now being revealed. It's not a mystery like a, a novel mystery and, you know, wow, we can't figure out who did it. I heard one famous preacher in America said, if it's a mystery to Paul, it's a mystery to me. That's not what he's saying. Not a mystery in that sense. Something that's previously been hidden that's now being revealed. It's hidden in the Scriptures and now being revealed. So, so Paul's revealing the mystery that Israel is only hardened in part. What does that mean? Well, in every generation, there's a remnant of Jews who believe, like Paul today or or Scott or Bob or me today, right? So Paul in his day and believers today, Jewish believers. So in every generation, there's a remnant, and the hardness is not for all time. It's not for all the people, and it's not for all time. At the end, there'll be a turning. At the end, there'll be a national turning. Well, why is he saying Don't be ignorant lest you become arrogant. Because ignorance would say God's totally finished with them. The hardening is on them for good. God's finished with them. And we are the new Israel. God destroyed them. He judged them once for all. Jesus cursed the fig tree that was symbolic of Israel. The temple was destroyed. And God says, that's it. 1 Thessalonians 2, wrath has come on them at last. And that's it. God's finished with Israel. Done. Goodbye. We are the new Israel. And with that... Arrogance came, terrible, terrible, terrible result, namely anti-Semitism in Jesus' name, persecution of Jews in Jesus' name. And here's what began to happen. We know from the Gospels that the religious leaders opposed Jesus and his message. We know from the book of Acts that the religious leaders opposed the apostles, so there was Jewish persecution of of fellow Jews who believed in Jesus. Jews who believed in Jesus were persecuted by Jews who did not believe in Jesus. And then we also know, we can intimate it from some New Testament sources, but then we know from some early church history that even as, as Jesus was preached in certain Gentile circles, that there was Jewish opposition to Jesus. And, and, and that's why there's, 
there are rebukes in the New Testament and, and examples given, like in, 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 in Acts the 17th chapter that the Jews of Thessalonica stir up trouble. Paul goes to another city and they stir up trouble where he's preaching. Even as he's preaching to Gentiles, they stir up trouble. So yes, there was, you could say, Jewish persecution of early Christians. That did happen. And yes, Jewish leadership rejected Jesus. Yes, that did happen. And that is a major reason why the temple was destroyed and we were scattered and exiled. Divine judgment. But that's not the end of the story. The church's response should have been one of mercy and compassion and prayer and intercession and blessing those who curse them. Instead, rather than honoring the fathers, they cursed the fathers. Rather than recognizing their roots, they cut themselves off from their roots. And that's why, and what we'll show you a brief video tonight before I speak, that's why you have two separate holidays called Passover and Easter that are celebrated at different times of the year. This year they're at the same time, but most of the time they're separated sometimes by a few weeks. That's because of a conscious decision by church leadership in the fourth century to sever itself from Jewish roots. Even the idea that, that the Sabbath was changed to Sunday, who gave anyone the right to do that? The Bible never did that. God never commanded the seventh-day Sabbath for the whole church. It was a sign that he gave to Israel. And if believers uh, want to honor the Sabbath on the seventh day, that's between them and God. But the point is, it, it was never written anywhere in the New Testament that, that Sunday has now become the Sabbath. That was, again, something the church decided centuries later. So that when Jewish people look at it, they don't see anything Jewish about it. When Jewish people look at the Christian faith, they see 1,500 plus years of persecution and hatred, and they see things that look anything but Jewish rooted. They see a different religion with different holidays and different customs and, and different everything. <coughs> as early as the second century, there was a demonizing of Jews or a dehumanizing of Jews. It may have been that, that there were Jews that kept pushing against the Christian faith and and, and as Jesus was being preached, they would oppose it. <clears throat> but either way, there was not a righteous response. And, and once Christianity triumphed with the conversion of Constantine, and now he wanted the whole Roman Empire to become Christian, instead of the Christians being a tiny persecuted minority or a growing persecuted minority, now suddenly they have the power. Now suddenly they're building the monuments. Now suddenly they have the cathedrals. I mean, this is what happens in the centuries that follow. As for the Jews, they're scattered and rejected, obviously, as an ongoing sign of divine judgment. A theology was developed that that is the role of the Jew, that the, the role of the Jew now is to be a witness nation to what it's like to be under the wrath of God. So to the extent they suffer, to the extent they're scattered, that is further proof of what happens when you reject Jesus. And therefore, you should not try to aid them in their suffering, but rather recognize that this is divine judgment on them. As for the Jews themselves, they were viewed as unspeakably evil. There was a famous preacher named John Chrysostom who was given the name Chrysostom after his death. Uh, it literally means golden mouth. This is how powerful he was as a preacher. And where he was in Antioch, there were Christians in his church 
who became interested in the synagogue, who became interested in Jewish custom and tradition, which got him very concerned. So he preached a series of messages, seven sermons against the Jews. It's actually an eighth, but famous seven sermons against the Jews. One of the most powerful preachers of his day, if you're especially from a Greek Orthodox background, Chrysostom's name is as great as any in church history. And this is what he said. The synagogue is worse than a brothel. It is the den of scoundrels and the repair of wild beasts, the temple of demons devoted to idolatrous cults, the refuge of brigands and debauchees, the cavern of devils. It is a criminal assembly of Jews, a place of meeting for the assassins of Christ, a house worse than a drinking shop, a den of thieves, a house of ill fame, a dwelling of iniquity, the refuge of devils, a gulf and abyss of perdition. I would say the same things about their souls. As for me, I hate the synagogue, I hate the Jews for the same reason. The theme of the message, God hates the Jews. And thus, as one scholar said, the popular Christian doctrine has always been that anyone, whether pagan or Christian, who has at any time persecuted, tortured, or massacred Jews has acted as an instrument of divine wrath. And notice his referring to Jews as the assassins of Christ. This idea that the Jews killed Christ and therefore all Jews are Christ killers and therefore by killing Christ they killed God, they are guilty of deicide. This was a charge that is brought to this day. I didn't have this experience growing up. I lived in a neighborhood of about 300 families that was virtually all Jewish, but not religiously Jewish. And then over the bridge, it was basically all Gentile, and we went to school together, and we're all friends and, and hung out, and didn't really run into a lot of anti-Semitism growing up, really almost none. But I have other friends of mine that are believers in Jesus today, and they've told their stories of, of coming home from school and, and coming home, little kids crying. Mommy, who's Christ? What do you mean? Well, the boys at school said, I killed Christ. I didn't kill anybody, Mommy. I have other friends that are believers today that would get beaten up by Gentile kids, quote, Christians in their neighborhood on the way to Hebrew school, and they, they'd throw stones at them and chase them down and call them Christ killers. And, of course, that's tremendously mild in terms of church history. If you fast forward some centuries to the Crusades, which began in 1096, what had happened was there were various Muslim conquests of Christian land, Muslim atrocities committed, etc. That's true. The Crusaders decided they've got to take back the Holy Land from Muslim control. They've got to push back against these Muslim incursions. And so they launched the Crusades to deal with these infidels, these unbelievers. As they begin to march through Europe, they realize, wait, 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 we, we have somebody even worse right here in our own backyard. We have the, the assassins of Christ, the Christ killers. And they begin to turn on Jewish neighbors, Jewish communities they lived in and lived with for, for years and years and years, and, and began to, to offer them baptism or death. I mean, think of that. This is, this is what many Jews know about the gospel. It, 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 is, it is this perverse faith 
believing in multiple gods or making a man into a god that hates Jewish people and, and that we'd rather die than submit to. They were offered baptism or death. A, a slogan was developed, kill a Jew and save your soul. And, and, and to this day, Jews look at, at those who died rather than be baptized as, as sacred martyrs, as people that honored the name of God. Some, however, did convert, and, and some continued to live secretly as Jews. So they were members of the Catholic Church, but living secretly as Jews. And that, of course, was forbidden. That was an abomination. And one of the reasons for the Inquisition, and one of the initial reasons for the Inquisition was to purge the Catholic Church of anything Jewish. Even the Jewish ethnicity had to be purged. So now you have people who forcibly are converted, and now they're going to be tortured because they're still living as Jews. There are baptismal formulas. In fact, let me, let me read a few to you. This is what you would have to say to get baptized into the Catholic Church at this time. Let me just find a couple of examples here. Here we go. This is to get baptized. I do here and now renounce every rite and observance of the Jewish religion, detesting all its most solemn ceremonies and tenets that in former days I kept and held. In the future, I will practice no rite or celebration connected with it, nor any custom of my past error, promising neither to seek it out or perform it. I promise that I will never return to the vomit of Jewish superstition. Never again will I fulfill any of the offices of the Jewish ceremonies to which I was addicted, nor evermore hold them dear. I will shun all intercourse with other Jews and have the circle of my friends only among other Christians. We will not, here's another one, we will not associate with the accursed Jews who remain unbaptized. We will not practice carnal circumcision or celebrate the Passover, the Sabbath, or the other feast days connected with the Jewish religion. They, they would have to vow to eat pork. They would vow to renounce the rabbis and venerate Mary. Together with the ancients, I anathematize, I curse also the chief rabbis and new evil doctors of the Jews. And I believe and profess the blessed Virgin Mary who bore him according to the flesh and who remained a virgin to be actually the mother of God. So you, you would renounce everything Jewish. You would say, I'm not going to live the way the apostles lived. And I'm now going to venerate Mary, curse the rabbis, and eat pork. This is to get baptized. And what's your alternative? Death. In 1215... The Fourth Lateran Council determined that in the communion service that the, the bread, the wafer, and the wine were literally the body and blood of Jesus. Those of you that grew up Catholic know that belief transubstantiation. That when you're, that's why you don't chew on the wafer, right? You let it dissolve in your mouth because that's actually the body of Christ. When they came to that determination, they realized, well, wait a second. Wait a second. These Jews now have another way of getting at Jesus. They can kidnap and torture a communion wafer. You think, who's going to believe nonsense like that? Well, communities were rounded up. Jews were burned at the stake for allegedly kidnapping and torturing a wafer. You say, well, thank God for the Reformation. 
Thank God for the changes that came. And yeah, that's true. 1523, Martin Luther wrote a little book that Jesus Christ was born a Jew. And he said, if, if I had been a Jew and seen the way these Christians run the church, called them coarse blockheads, the popes and the bishops and the monks, he said, I would have rather been a pig than a Christian. And he said, perhaps we can reach out to them. After all, they're the elder brothers and we're the younger ones. Perhaps we can reach out to them and, and win them. Well, 20 years later, when he had not seen the mass conversion he was expecting to see, 20 years later, when some of the Christians in his region were becoming interested in Jewish tradition and things like that, when he had been shown some blasphemous anti-Jesus writings that had been penned by some rabbis over the centuries, some of it in, re in reaction to Christian persecution, and when he actually believed that Jews cursed Christians in the synagogue on a daily basis, and he was also old and sick, and it's true that he spoke of all of his enemies in the harshest of terms. Tragically, Martin Luther wrote another book in 1543 concerning the Jews and their lies. Now you can get it anywhere online, just find it easily. But when I went to get the book years ago, the only place I could find it was in neo-Nazi catalogs. You say, well, what did, what did Luther teach? What, what did he counsel the, the princes? Well, let me read it to you directly. First, their synagogues should be set on fire. Martin Luther. Secondly, their homes should likewise, likewise be broken down and destroyed. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and talmuds, the religious literature. Fourthly, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach anymore. Fifthly, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. Sixthly, they ought to be stopped from usury, so charging interest on loans. Seventhly, let the young and strong Jews and Jewesses be given the flail, the axe, the hoe, the spade, the distaff, and spindle, and let them earn their bread by the sweat of their noses. We are to drive the rascally lazy bones out of our system, therefore away with them. To sum up, dear princes and nobles who have Jews in your domains, if this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one, so that you and we may all be free of this insufferable devilish burden, the Jews. So what happened was this. Luther's contemporaries rejected that writing. His Latin translator tried to soften it. Subsequent generations of Lutherans emphasized his 1523 writing, reaching out with compassion to Jewish people. Unfortunately, the Nazis rediscovered or reused his 1543 document. And according to some, Martin Luther was the John the Baptist of Adolf Hitler, the man who prepared the way for Hitler's ideology. And remember, the Holocaust takes place in so-called Christian Europe, in what was considered to be a highly cultured, highly Christian continent. Austria, where Hitler hails from, basically divided between Catholic and Protestant. It is now 1938, 
November 9th, many historians consider that to be the, the real beginning of the Holocaust. It's called Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. There was Nazi retaliation for an assassination, and they decided to do exactly what Luther had counseled. November 9th and 10th, 1938, the Nazis decided we're going to start and do exactly what Luther counseled. And that night, they went on a rampage, destroying synagogues, setting them on fire, destroying Jewish homes, Jewish places of business. So people wake up on the 10th, and synagogues are burning all over Germany. And one of the leading bishops of that day happened to notice November 10th, that's Luther's birthday, and said, what, what a great sight to see the synagogues burning on the birthday of Martin Luther. During the Nuremberg War Trials, when the Nazis were called to account for their crimes, one of their leaders said Martin Luther should be sitting here because he was the greatest anti-Semite of them all. And of course, the German people just let the thing happen. They didn't respond, they didn't defend the Jews, and that's, that's when the Nazis especially realize we can do what we want to do. There's a, a 10 volume work, it's in every major theological library in the world, every major Christian theological library in the world. It's called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. I've owned it for many years. It's a work of incredible scholarship and depth that was written in German, translated into English. And there was the editor for the first five volumes, Gerhard Kittel, and then the editor for the second five volumes, Gerhard Friedrich. I mean, they're big, fat volumes, Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. What many people don't realize is that Gerhard Kittel was a Nazi. He was one of the leading theologians of his day. The Nazis put out a, a new version of the New Testament that stripped away anything positive about the Jewish people, even removed whole verses like John 4.22, salvation is of the Jews. They published books that, that Jesus was an Aryan, that he wasn't actually Jewish. And they did this as professing Christians. The, the Ukrainian guards that were so cruel to to Jews often had on their belts the inscription, God with us. One Jewish woman, a believer in Jesus, years later, when, when she went into a concentration camp on, in Poland, there was an inscribed on the gate when she came in, because you killed our God, we kill you. There's a friend of mine leads a large Messianic congregation in the States, and his father was a survivor of the Holocaust. And the story of how he survived is heartbreaking. But after the Holocaust, he and a few of his Jewish friends, the, the tiny amount that survived, in, in Poland, 3 million out of 3.3 million Jews were killed. So 90% of the Jews of Poland were killed. So a handful of, of survivors, they're sitting at one of the houses playing cards because there's just nothing else to do, no job, just sitting around playing cards. 
and some of their Catholic neighbors were so incensed that they survived that, that, that they attacked the house and started shooting, and they just ran into the woods and never, never went back. This is what many Jews know about church history. When the Crusaders finally conquered Jerusalem in 1099, overcoming Muslim resistance and Jewish resistance, the Jews were herded together into the great synagogue. And according to accounts, they were, they were burned to death while the Crusaders marched around singing, Christ, we adore thee. And of course, on their uniforms was emblazoned the, the cross. This is why if you go to a Messianic congregation, why don't we see a cross? Well, because a cross has a certain image. We preach the cross, but the image of the cross uh, stirs up different memories for Jewish people. It does, it does not point to Jesus. It points to persecution and hatred. That's why we're very careful not to use words like convert, because the goal is not to get you to convert to another religion, but as a Jew to follow Jesus, the Messiah. It's not semantics. It's, a, it's reality we want them to understand. You say, okay, this is all horrible and terrible, but the church has done a lot of repenting since the Holocaust, and there's been a lot of recognition of, of the destructive roots of anti-Semitism in church history. And not only so, the Israel being restored, now evangelical Christians are best friends of Israel. All that's true, and all that's positive. Unfortunately, anti-Semitism is alive and well today not just in the Muslim world, and not just in other places where Jews are hated, but in many professing Christian circles as well. And, and I, I want to be absolutely candid with you. Uh, I got saved in a church, little Italian Pentecostal church, saved in 71, and they had a great love for the Jewish people. Great love for Israel, great love for the Jewish people. I have worked in many evangelical circles, and preached in some of the finest churches in the world, mega churches, and one after another, after another, after another, with a tremendous heart for Israel, a great love for Israel. I've been overseas maybe 200 trips and repeatedly run into, and I'll share some of this tonight, incredible love for Israel, incredible love for the Jewish people. And some of it's been tested. You know, evangelical love for Israel is still steady after decades and decades to the point that the, the government of Israel really recognizes that. So my own experience has been that what I wrote about in the book has been very foreign. What I wrote about and documented, which, which any rabbi will tell you, a religious Jew will tell you in great detail, in great pain, that, that what, what they talk about, what I've written about, is something that I have rarely ever experienced until recently. Because I've been in certain circles that I have not run into this ugly, rampant, intense rejection of the Jews as evil. Recently, I've confronted it on a Christian TV ministry called True News and called them out publicly for anti-Semitic comments, for, you know, the Jews own the White House and the Jews own evangelicals and you know, Israel is this evil, genocidal type country. That last is not a direct quote, but to give you the feel of things. And, and the Talmud is, is full of, of blasphemies and, and that Jews should kill Christians and things like that. There's a, a comedian 
named Owen Benjamin I wasn't familiar with, but he was well known in conservative circles and really challenging a lot of the ideology of the left and then somehow has embraced all of the anti-Semitic lies about Jewish people. And so I was showed some of his rants, shown some of his rants online and got up and did some videos addressing this and then reaching out, you know, let's interact, man. And the flood of responses was such, we have over 1,600 videos on our Ask Dr. Brown YouTube channel. And, and we have a profanity filter that's supposed to block comments with profanity and a few other things just get held up. Like if you post the same comment 30 times, it'll get held up before it's posted. But otherwise, we allow people to comment freely, go back and forth, and you can argue and do whatever. We just try to avoid personal attacks and things, but there's so many thousands of comments, we can't monitor everything. Well, these got so bad. The Jew-hating comments got so bad that we had to shut down comments. I think it's only the second time on all of our videos that we had to disable comments because they were so ugly, so continually. And a lot of what's fueling Owen Benjamin's fire is the teaching of a Catholic scholar, E. Michael Jones. And in his views, the Jews killed Christ. The Jews are hostile to all men. The Jews are subversive. And he's written, he's got a 1,200-page book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, Others, Jews and Moral Subversion, etc. So... I said, hey, you want to come on my show? We'll, we'll be, uh, I'm going to challenge you forthrightly, but I'll do it in a civil way. We're both academics. Will you come on? He said, absolutely. And he was really glad to be on the show and felt he was treated fairly. But it's, it's a shocker to hear what he believes. It's an absolute shocker. And on, on, on my YouTube channel, our interview has been viewed maybe, I don't know, five, 6,000 times. Just was posted a little over a week ago. And we post a new video or two every day, so it takes a little while for the numbers to go up. He's got less than half the number of subscribers I do, but on his YouTube channel, the video has been watched oh, over 30,000 times, and the, the thumbs up versus thumbs down, it's like 1,500 to 10. In other words, everybody there is agreeing with him. So I started reading through the comments, probably got a few thousand comments, and I'm talking about Everything in this book and more. And, and here, I'll, I'll just, this is not a really bad one, but it's one I happen to be able to pull up earlier. Someone saw a video where I was explaining wh why I reject the Talmud, why I reject rabbinic authority, but how it gets misrepresented, misunderstood. You are not a Christian, Mr. Brown. You constantly defend Jews and their beliefs, the Talmud. You constantly talk about the typical Jewish talking points and name-call and clam anti-Semitism. You are just another con man. First off, the Jews were not victimized and picked on for no reason, especially in Europe. European kingdoms gave Jews special privileges nonstop all throughout Europe, but Jews would always do the same thing. They would exploit the Gentile, non-Jews, and cause chaos everywhere they went. So as opposed to the reality that Jews were trying to live in their own communities and follow their traditions and just leave us alone and don't try to convert us, no, no, the Jews are the troublemakers wherever they've gone. Um, every Muslim invasion into Europe from the beginning in the early 8th century by the Umayyads to the very end with the Ottomans, Jews assisted them. This is well documented, but you and every other Jew deny this. 
Jews will use the same tactics claiming it's anti-Semitism, but that's just nonsense. I'm a historian, I'm very familiar with everything you brought up in this video, and you are wrong on every point, and you know you are wrong, you're just lying. Like always, you were trying to make Jews look like the victims when in fact the Jews have caused so much devastation. They are responsible for so many atrocities wherever they went, especially Europe. And this is why the Jews have been expelled so many times. You mentioned France and the burning of the Talmud. A Jew did convert and explain the blasphemy in the Talmud, so they studied the Talmud and it was put on trial in a sense and it was burned. It was burned because France was a Christian nation and the Talmud is for blasphemy like Jesus is in hell boring on his own excrement. It goes on insulting Jesus, calling him many names, and even Mary, his mother. I don't even want to repeat what it says, but it goes on and on. And then it talks about non-Jews, goys, in a very bad way. So how can you say that people misinterpret the Talmud? I have read all the volumes of the Talmud, and it's horrible. By the way, it's nonsense that he read all the volumes of the Talmud. 6,000 plus pages, 20 volumes, and he couldn't understand it in English anyway. It goes on and on and on about Jesus, Christian, and Gentiles, non-Jews in such a disgusting way. It's really horrible. So in France, Jews had to explain the Talmud, defend it, and they couldn't. Jews were eventually expelled because there are numerous crimes that they committed in France. And it goes on and on. Uh, East, e. Michael Jones even says, yeah, the Holocaust was bad, but Jews basically w were a problem and had to be dealt with. Uh, this is what's out there, and it is growing. And, the, uh, and listen, the only thing that's going to stop the spreading of these lies is Christian truth. You cannot expect the spirit of the world to do it. Here, look, Jews in America tend to be very liberal, very secular, pro-abortion, pro-gay marriage, vote heavily Democrat, overwhelmingly. There are reasons for it, not good reasons, but there are reasons for it. So the Democrat Party, largely supported by Jewish votes, is becoming increasingly anti-Israel, and even some of its people blatantly anti-Semitic, and there's only a little bit of pushback. Anything could shift. The only thing that's going to stop the rising tide of anti-Semitism is Christians who love Israel. The world is not gonna stop it because it's the same demonic spirit. And here's the deal. The Jewish people are like everybody else good qualities and bad qualities. And in point of fact, if you go to Israel, you'll see that Israel has more freedoms and liberties, your average Israeli, than any, any other person living anywhere in the Middle East. Muslims living in Israel have more liberty than Muslims living in any other country in the Middle East. On the one hand. On the other hand, Tel Aviv is the most gay-friendly city in the world. And Israeli female soldiers can get free abortions while they're in the army. And in other words, Israel has its good points and its bad points. And the Jewish people, I believe because of our calling, calling to be a light to the world, calling to, to be world changers, when we get things right, there's tremendous impact. You know, from Moses to Paul to Jesus the Messiah, to the massive number of Nobel Prizes won by Jews, to positive developments by Jews. You know, there's a video in different forums, but you can find it easily online, Before You Boycott Israel. Just type that in, Before You Boycott Israel. And it's a video basically showing you wouldn't be able to do anything, you know. You wouldn't be able to use a cell phone or get on a plane or have, you know, your heart checked. Or, you know, so many technologies developed by Israel. It's amazing how much good a small group of people can do. On the other hand, 
When we get it wrong, you have the, the Karl Marxes of the world, you know, and the founders of communism and, 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 and you know, the Sigmund Freuds and the psychology and where that goes. So we just have a disproportionate influence for good or for bad. Once people look at us the wrong way, once they, they put away the good, once they, they, they fail to realize the divine calling and purpose, they just see the bad, and now the Jews are evil. And friends, let me say it again, example after example after example after example of this coming today from professing Christians, coming today from people who say we've been at war with the Jews just like the apostles were, just like the church fathers were. Had a Catholic scholar say Chrysostom had it exactly right. These quotes I read, he had it exactly right. Others coming on my website defending Luther and what he wrote. He understood what he was really dealing with. This is out there, friends, and it's going to get louder and uglier, and you're the ones that are going to make a difference. So I want to encourage you to get educated. The Catholic scholar Edward Flannery said that those pages of history which Jews have memorized, Christians have torn out of their history books. And I've been an, an adjunct professor or visiting professor at a total of seven different seminaries. And in some of the seminaries, I talked with church historians. I mean, great guys, godly men. They know, I'm not exaggerating when I say that, that they forget more of church history in a day than I learned in my lifetime. I mean, they're towering scholars. And I've asked them, so when do you teach about the seven sermons of, of Chrysostom against the Jews? And, and when do you talk about anti-Semitism in church history? And, and when do you talk about, <clears throat> when do you talk about uh, stuff like uh, you know, Martin Luther's anti-Semitic writings? And they looked at me with shame. Well, we, we don't. Some of them have whole classes, like several semesters long, just on Luther. And they never deal with this. So you need to get educated. It will help you have a broken heart for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And think, if the people at an Israel conference are not going to get educated, who is, right? Make sure the next generation knows and understands. And, and tonight, I'm going to fill you with hope, with encouragement, with, with joy, with faith. Trust me, you'll be blessed. Call your friends. Tell them to come out. They, they will be super blessed. And I'll share some amazing quotes from history of people who had a profound vision of God's promises to Israel. But for now, get educated. Let God break your heart with these things. If you ever share the gospel with the Jewish people and, and they know their history and bring it up to you, you should know the history even better. And where they stop, stop the sentence, you start yours, fill them in on what happened, and then say, I am so sorry. As, as a Gentile follower of Jesus, I am so terribly sorry for what these others have done in Jesus' name. I, that's not, that's not what he, he taught, the opposite. That's not what Christians are like. Let me show you what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. Forgive me for what they did, and let me show you, and you'll be amazed the doors that opens. Amen? So get the book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood. Let God break your heart as he broke mine in writing it, and then let him build your faith, as will happen as you read the book as well. Father, we love you, and we thank you, and we pray, O oh God, that our lives would be forever changed that your people would provoke Israel to jealousy by the love that they have, and by the walk they have with you. In Jesus' name, amen.